This morning's scripture will be from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 16. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Jesus of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Renee. And good morning, church family. Don't worry, Pastor David will be up next week. And uh, my name is Andrew Watt, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with you. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. Now, the event uh, that you're kind of new to reading the Bible, uh, you can find 1 Timothy in the New Testament. And the New Testament begins with the four Gospels of Jesus Christ. And then following that, we find the book of Acts, which is a, a history of the early church. And then after that, we find 13 of the Apostle Paul's letters, and they are arranged uh, more or less according to their length. And so the, the letter to the Romans comes first. It's Paul's most thorough explanation of the gospel. It spans 16 verses. And then 12 books later, we find the very brief letter to Philemon. It's only 25 verses long. And most of Paul's letters are written to communities. So they're addressed to the saints in Rome, or the saints in Ephesus, or the saints in Philippi. But there are four letters that are addressed to individuals. And uh, we often call the, uh, the letters to First and Second Timothy and Titus, we refer to them sometimes as the pastoral letters. And that's because these letters are unique and that they're written to Paul's younger co-workers who are entrusted with some pastoral responsibilities. And it would seem that the occasion for this first letter to Timothy is the presence of false teachers who have infiltrated the church in Ephesus. We discover this in chapter 1, verse 3. And Paul writes this letter to Timothy with the goal of encouraging him in his pastoral responsibilities. In the letter, we find practical instruction, 
uh, related to, to matters in the life of the church, and also we find personal exhortation. And one such place that we see the, the, the personal exhortation is the passage that Renee read for us earlier. And so if you think with me again about that text that we just heard, uh, much, of the, much of it was just these, these short admonitions that are both negative and positive. So Paul uh, urges Timothy to have nothing to do with irrelevant myths. Rather, he has to train himself for godliness. He's commanded to, to teach these things. He's to set an example for believers. He's to devote himself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, and to teach. He is uh, not to neglect his spiritual gift. He's to practice these things. And then we get to verse 16, where I feel like Paul puts a bow around his thoughts, and we get this summary statement. It says this, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. We'll focus our time together on this one verse. And it's so short, let's just all read it again together. Will you read this with me wherever you're at, whether you're here or whether you're watching on home? Let's say it together. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Well, we see this passage begins with a command to keep a close watch. And I, I think this is a concept we can all wrap our minds around. It's the idea of, of paying careful attention or taking heed. And, and I suspect there are already several things that you're keeping a close watch on. Perhaps you have a doctor who has encouraged you to keep a close watch on your blood pressure or your blood sugar level. Or uh, perhaps there are some retirement accounts that you like to keep a close eye on. Maybe you've got an, an app or a website that you check daily or hourly to, to, to see what your balances are at. Or if you're in business, I'm guessing you keep a close eye on your revenue or your expenses or some other metric that's important to the health of your company or department. For those of us that are parents, I suspect we keep a close eye on our kids. We want to know what they're watching on their phones or who they're playing with or what their grades are in school. And the Bible tells us that that same level of, of, of scrutiny that we give to our health and our finances and our kids, we need to apply that to two important things. And I'll share the first one with you. We'll look again at the passage. And, and I think this is going to be so obvious. Here's how this is going to work. I'm, I'm going to read the start, and I'm going to let you finish with the, with the part that's going to be underlined, okay? And incidentally, this is going to be the first uh, blank in the back of your bulletin if you're taking notes. Are we ready? Can we get it? Waiting one. Nope. Maybe the next one. All right, here we go. We'll just, I'll just fill you in, all right? He starts like this. Keep a close watch on yourself. In other words, watch your life closely. This isn't the idea. When he says keep a close watch on yourself, he isn't saying that, you know, you need to be checking yourself out in the mirror a lot more often. This is, this is pay attention into your conduct, to your character, to all that you do. Your lifestyle matters. In fact, it's so important that it merits constant scrutiny. And I want to just point out three areas 
of our lives where I feel like watchfulness would be wise. And the first is entertainment. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, the leisure activity that occupies the majority of our time is, any guesses? Yes, watching TV. I heard it somewhere over there. And on average, this is statistics from 2019, 2.8 hours per day. And now with the advances in technology, the, the, the TV is no longer the only way to view content on a screen, right? So we've, we've got some other options. And if we include social media and streaming content and what's on your DVR, the average number of hours Americans spent on average per day in 2019 was, you ready for this? A whopping five hours and 45 minutes. Now, I realize for some of us, it might be a little less, but let's just say this. Can we agree to this? That, that compared to previous generations, we watch a lot more TV. We watch a lot more screens. And, and we have way more options at our disposal, right? Hulu, Netflix, Apple TV. We've got Amazon Prime. We've got basic cable. We've got all the premium package. There are so many options out there. And when it comes to what we should set before our eyes, the Apostle Paul, he gives us a standard. We find this in Ephesians 5. He writes this, Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take how much part? No part in the unfruitful works of darkness. He goes on to mention that it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. And so here's my thought. If, if it's shameful to even speak of these things, it's probably not a good idea to microwave a bowl of popcorn and plop down on the couch and be entertained by it. In Romans 12, verse 2, we read, Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There, there is no such thing as morally neutral entertainment. See, here's the way this works. If you're going to tell a good story, you can't help but make a moral argument. It, it, I, don't, I don't care if it's, a, if it's a Disney story, a movie, uh, an HBO miniseries. It, embedded in every program, embedded in every movie we watch are suggestions about what's good and right and true. And some of these suggestions, they align with the things that God affirms. But in other shows, there are ideas that are smuggled in that are contrary to what God declares to be good and right and true. Three weeks ago, I had the opportunity to fill in for, for David Holcomb, and I was able to ask Pastor David the questions on our weekly episode of, of Pastor, What Did You Mean? This is something that we put on our YouTube channel comes out Monday evening, 7 p.m. every week. And the day prior, Pastor David had been preaching on Philippians 3, and he said that sometimes in our lives, there can be times when God will call us to lay aside something for the purpose of knowing him more. And in the interview, I thought it would just be a good question if I asked Pastor David. I said, hey, is there, is there ever a time where you feel like God has called you to lay aside something in particular for the purpose of, of knowing him more? And in response, David mentioned two things. And the second was entertainment. 
He said that just as he reflected on his own spiritual growth over the years, that there were times where the Lord impressed upon him to give up a particular show or movie because it wasn't honoring to him. And he said he felt like that as we grow closer in our walk with the Lord, we become more sensitive to things that offend him, and so our lives tend to be weaned from these things. See, there's no such thing as, as watching a movie or a TV show and turning your mind off. And, and when we expose our minds to content that isn't good and right and true, instead of being transformed by the renewing of our mind, what happens is we're conformed to the image of the world. And the problem with that is that it robs us of something better, the opportunity to draw closer to God. And part of watching our life closely means that we, we give close attention to what we set before our eyes so that we can pursue godliness. And so I think just part of, of watching our life closely means that before we watch something, we ask ourselves if we would feel comfortable hitting play if Jesus was sitting right beside us. So that's bullet point one, under watch our life closely. Number two, another way I feel like it's just wise for us as Christians to keep a close watch on our lives is with regards to alcohol. I say this because I think it's so easy for alcohol to turn into a counterfeit God. And I'm not suggesting that any of us like literally bow down to it, but I think there's this temptation to look to it for things that only God can provide. If after a difficult day of work, you find yourself turning to a bottle of wine, then alcohol has become your go-to for stress relief. And you end up treating it like a functional savior. And and God says we're to run to him and not to turn to a bottle. In Philippians 4, 6 and 7, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And so rather than trying to, to numb or drown out the hurt or the pain or the disappointment. God says, come, cast all your cares upon me because I care for you. And we can rob them of that opportunity if we treat alcohol as the go-to for stress relief. Others can turn to alcohol for a good time. So here's a question I just have. If you were to attend a party or uh, a sporting event or some other social gathering where you normally enjoyed a few drinks but there was no alcohol available, would that event be less fun for you? Could you enjoy a football game or a vacation or a night out with friends without a few drinks? See, I'm just not saying that you shouldn't get drunk. I think we all know that. I'm saying that alcohol can't be a prerequisite in order for you to have a good time. Because here's what God says through the psalmist. Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. Those in Thessalonica, they're commended for the way that they received the gospel in the midst of affliction with much joy in the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that he came in order that we might have life and have it abundantly. And so if we need a drink in order to have a good time, I just want you to think with me for a minute about what this communicates to others 
and what it communicates to God about his ability to deliver on his promises. And so I'm encouraging you to, 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 to keep a close watch on your relationship with alcohol because I, I feel like I can say with, with some certainty that it has the potential to do more harm than good in your life. A third way we can keep watching ourselves is with regards to friendships. So I heard this pastor say once that for better or worse, we are going to become like the average of our five closest friends. Proverbs 13, 20 says, Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have Christian friends, but I'm saying that, that our inner circle, our closest friends, the people we spend the most time with, the one that we're on group text with, the one we hang out with on Friday night, the people we plan vacations with, that their opinions are going to shape your thinking. Their advice will affect your decisions. Their example is going to rub off on you. And I say, by all means, per pursue friendships with everyone, especially with those who aren't believers. But make sure that you have some fellow Christians that are in your inner circle. And the advantage of this is that you invite accountability into your life. You, you gain the perspective and you gain the counsel of others who will help you keep a close watch on your life. And I'm so grateful for this in my own life. You know, the, the great King David in the Bible, the one that wrote a lot of the book of Psalms, he had a friend who encouraged him in the Lord. His name was Jonathan. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 23. But you know when, when King David had his greatest moral failure, when he committed adultery and murder, it was after Jonathan had passed away. And I can't help but wonder if, if, if during that season of life, if David still had in his life this, you know, the companionship of a close friend who loved the Lord, I wonder if he would have had to live with that particular regret. I think the, the, this, this idea of, of Christian companionship, it's, it's so important to Jesus that when he sent out his disciples, how did he do it? Did he launch them out as Lone Rangers? No, he, he sent them out in pairs. Friendship's important. And, and just this idea of watching our life, is, it's so broad, it encompasses so much, we could generate a longer list, couldn't we? We, we could add more than three to this. I mean, later, just, just in 1 Timothy 6, Paul warns about the love of money. He describes the desire to be rich. You know what he, he likens it to? He says it's a snare. Just think with me about that for a minute. He says it's a snare. It's, it's a trap. He says that will plunge people into ruin. I think we could talk about handling disappointment or controlling our temper. But hopefully you have a sense of what it means to keep a close watch on yourself. It's not the idea of looking in the mirror. And as we, we just meditate on this, as we go through the week, just ask God to, to bring to your attention anything that he would want you to give greater scrutiny to in your life. Because our, our conduct and our character, they matter. And as I, as I share this, I, I can't help but think about the person listening who right now might have a sense of regret because of the way that maybe they haven't kept a close watch over their life. And I just want you to know that you are not alone. 
Just even, even this week as I was preparing for this message, I thought of times where I know that I hadn't taken heed of my own counsel. Just memories came back to me. Uh, things that I regretted. And it wasn't a, a pleasant experience at the moment, but I just want to share with you how the Lord encouraged me. We're going to look back just one verse at verse 15. Does, does Paul say that we're to do these things so that all may see our perfection? No. What word does he use? So that all may see our what? Progress. This was such an encouragement to me. And so if, if your past is riddled with mistakes, just know that the goal isn't perfection. It's progress. And you can move forward. That's the beauty of the Christian life. Let, let, let people see your growth and godliness. That's the goal, not perfection. But it's not just our life that we need to keep a close watch on. The charge is twofold. We're going to look again at verse 16. I'm going to see if you guys can uh, help me out again. All right, we got it up here this time. Let, let's do it this way. I, I'll have you read uh, the first part of the verse, and I'll do the underlined part. I'll respond with the answer, okay? So I'll get us started. Keep teaching. Yes. <laughs> so this is the, the second blank number two. We watch ourselves and we watch the teaching. What does that mean? Well, again, I, I think it's just sometimes helpful to go to a couple other translations to see how they convey the same idea. The NIV translates this as watch your life and doctrine closely. We are to be equally attentive to our theology, to the content of the teaching of the faith. I, I feel like we live in a time where it's really popular. It's sort of in vogue to identify yourself as a person of faith. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that label, with claiming that identification. But I just want to point out that having a faith in and of itself is not sufficient for salvation. Because ultimately what matters is the content of our faith. And this is a theme that's repeated over and over again in this book of 1 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 3 reads, Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And chapter 4, verse 6, we read about being trained in good doctrine. So if there's good doctrine, that would also apply that there's what? That there's bad doctrine. Chapter 6, verse 3 warns against those who would teach a different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's teaching out there that doesn't agree, it doesn't align, it doesn't jive with what Jesus taught. And the book closes, the very last chapter, with a warning that some have swerved from the faith. Does that sound like a positive connotation? No, that's a bad thing. They've swerved from the faith because they bought into what is falsely called knowledge. We need to give as much attention to our doctrine as we do our behavior. Because according to 1 Timothy 1.19, incorrect ideas, he says they can shipwreck our faith. And he gives examples of two individuals. And in case you don't already know it, just like in Paul's day, there are, there are people that are, that are teaching a different doctrine that doesn't agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Just this week, I heard about a book entitled Conversations with God. 
Now, maybe you, you've heard about this, and this is like old news, because um, well, I felt a little bit behind the times, because when I did a little bit more reading, it, it turns out that the book first came out in 1995. Uh, it, it, it was on the New York Times bestseller list for over two years. <laughs> so I, um, but, but it turns out that there's like over 10 books in the series, and so there's been some subsequent ones that have continued to have been released over the years. Oprah Winfrey has declared the author to be one of the top 10 most memorable thinkers that she's ever met. And with a title like Conversations with God, you would think, well, hey, this is going to be some really like spiritually edifying and, and helpful content here. And, uh, and many of the reviews are glowing. Just out of curiosity, I decided to read a couple. Here's the very first one. When I was going through the roughest spiritual time in my life, this book not only restored my faith in myself as a minister and my ministry in general, but restored my faith in God. I mean, sounds like a must read, right? I mean, ministers are saying this is helpful stuff. Well, the only problem is, is, is that the teaching, the content of this book is absolutely subversive to the basic tenets of the Christian faith. Here we go. I'll just read one excerpt from you. Feeling is the language of the soul. If you want to know what's true for you about something, look to how you're feeling about it. Feelings are sometimes difficult to discover and often even more difficult to acknowledge. Yet hidden in your deepest feelings is your highest truth. Doesn't that sound beautiful? The only problem is, is it's just absolutely wrong. This is a really dangerous idea that can shipwreck your faith. You know what Jesus tells us? Jesus tells us that out of the heart come evil thoughts. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. The heart, our feelings, they're not always a reliable guide for what's good for us. And, and the Bible says that instead of looking within ourselves to determine what's true, we're actually supposed to look outside ourselves. That we need to look to God and we need to look to his truth and what he's given us in his word. It, it's not what we feel about it that makes something true. It's what God says about it that makes something true. And I could, I could give you plenty more examples from this book, examples that are just, you know, myths that have seemed to worm their way into our popular culture. But the point is that there's just a lot of teaching out there that doesn't align with what the Bible would call the good deposit or the stewardship that's from God or the faith that's once for all entrusted to the saints. And so we need sort of like an internal and inner, like a spiritual polygraph where we can take these, these thoughts, these ideas that are being bombarded our way, and we can do like the Bereans did in Acts 17. You know what they did? They're, they're commended for being of noble character because anytime they heard something, they went and they, they compared it against the scriptures to see if it was true. Some of the stuff out there is just, you know, outright lies, and others, just, it's just misleading half-truths, like this idea that, that God just wants you to be happy. And so, you know, the measuring stick for, for how we get, make our decisions is just, which option is going to give you the, 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 the most happiness, the most perceived happiness? And I, I just want you to know that just because someone has a speaking ministry, or they have a YouTube following, or they're citing Bible verses doesn't mean that they're teaching sound doctrine that, accord, that, that, that corresponds with the words of Jesus Christ. So we keep a close eye on our doctrine. We watch our life 
and we watch our doctrine closely. And I think if we do this, it's going to spare us a lot of harm. And I don't need to name names, but I think we can just think for ourselves from the news or maybe people we, we know who have invited a lot of disappointment into their life because they haven't done these two things well. The verse then continues. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, if you're not yet a Christian, you might be curious. Maybe you've heard it said that the central message of Christianity isn't do, do, do. It's done. It's not about what we need to do. It's about what Christ did on the cross. Maybe you're thinking of, of 1 Peter 3.18, for Jesus Christ for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring us to God. And it's true. The, the good news of Christianity is that our salvation is not contingent upon our adherence to any religious rules or our efforts to be a good person or our ability to live by uh, the golden rule. Our salvation is based on what Jesus did, not on what we do. And you're smart people. You, you might ask to yourself then, well, um, okay, if salvation's a gift, if it's something that can't be earned or merited, what's, what, what, what was that verse implying? Why does it say, persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers? I mean, if, if salvation can't be earned, why would we need to persist in watching our life and our doctrine closely? It seems to say that that's how you're going to save yourself. And, and what's going on in this passage is, is that we see that it's touching on the doctrine of sanctification and the idea of perseverance of the saints. Let's talk about sanctification first. It's, it's this idea that we can have salvation because God gave his life for us. But guess what? Jesus also wants to display his life in us. So Jesus gave his life for us, but he wants to also display his life in us. And when a person places their faith in Jesus, the Bible tells us that person immediately is given a new identity. The process is instantaneous. It's not that the individual has the potential to become a new person. It's not that they're on the pathway to becoming a new person. The Bible says that if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. It's an objective fact. It's a definitive declaration. And this new idea will begin to reorient behavior. So as an example, just, just think for a minute of what happens when a caterpillar turns into a butterfly. Do you see butterflies crawling around on their stomach munching leaves? No, we don't see that. And it's because their new identity has, has changed their behavior. And so now we see them flying around with their wings and using their new tongues to, to drink the nectar from the flowers. And it's the same way with us as Christians. Our, our, our new identity in Christ will reorient our behavior. And I, and I don't want anyone to be confused about what this verse is teaching the Bible doesn't hold out a bunch of commands and then extend salvation as a, as a prize that's awarded for, for success in, in living up to the commands. That would be reversing a, a very clear biblical order. I, I'll just give you an example. If you were to ask someone why they think they're saved and they said, well, you know, I, I try and have faith and 
I'm basically a good person. I try and do right by others, and I, I go to church most of the time. Well, that's not what makes someone a Christian. Listen, because if, if salvation is just the result of our behavior, God isn't saving us. You know that, right? What, what that means is God is just simply helping us save ourselves. But, but God isn't interested in helping us save ourselves. The Bible says that God wants to do all the saving. Let's look at 1 Timothy 1.15. Again, the book we're in, it makes this really clear that Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus came into the world to what? To help sinners? To save sinners. He does it all. And so sanctification is this idea that, that if grace is the essence of our salvation, then gratitude is the essence of our response, and we want to live out our new identity. Also see, what we see being taught here is this idea of the perseverance of the saints. So scripture teaches that all who are in Christ can be confident of their salvation. Romans 10, 13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord does it say might be saved, has the potential to be saved, could be saved? It says they will be saved. There can be confidence in that. In the, in the work that Jesus begins in us, we see elsewhere that he's faithful to bring it to completion. So what he starts, he's going to finish. And, and it's not that Timothy's perseverance would somehow merit or earn him salvation. It's that this long obedience in the same direction would give unquestionable evidence of his salvation. And not only that, that, that his, his godly example, his perseverance would positively influence the obedience of his hearers. And friends, I don't want anyone to leave here feeling like I just put a greater weight on your back. Like, oh gosh, you know, here's... Here's two more things I need to be doing if I'm, if I'm going to be accepted by God because that's the last thing I'd want to do. Jesus says, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And here's the thing. We can persist in these things only as we look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. In, in every area where we have failed, he has done this perfectly. And, and not only has he given us a great example, he also gives us the power to walk in obedience. See, what happens is when we trust in him, he sends his spirit into us, which gives us not only the desire to do these things, but also the ability to do these things. And when we trust in him, he gives us this ability to, to, to renounce all the things that we should and to passionately pursue him and to live the life of godliness, that, that, that we'd be reflected of him. And if you've never made the decision to trust Jesus, I want to give you the opportunity to do that now. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, Thank you for not giving up on us. Thank you that we can receive the same grace that Jonah received and your word can keep coming to us a second, a third, a fourth, a fifth time. And I think I speak not only for myself, but 
possibly also for some here. Whereas we think about the passage, it's also possible for us to experience a sense of regret as we think about the times that we have fallen short. And I thank you for your great reminder in Romans 8.1 that when we're in Christ Jesus, there is therefore now no condemnation. I thank you that we can move forward because of your great grace. And God, for the person here who today has had the eyes of their heart enlightened and they recognize that a right relationship with you can never be earned, it can never be achieved through good behavior, it's something that needs to be received by faith. Well, if you're that person, I want to give you the opportunity to trust in Jesus right now. And you can just say a prayer like this. You can say, God, I thank you so much for sending your son Jesus to live the perfect life I could never live. I'm grateful that he would bear the penalty for the consequences of my sin. And I'm trusting in his death in my place. And I thank you for sending your spirit into my life. And I want to live for you all of my days. Amen. Amen.